It's episode number 31 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. This week on the show, it's Justin McGurick, the curator at the London Design Museum. We talk about their current show, Designed in California, and trace how the last 60 years of history on America's West Coast influenced the design of the products that we use today. So let's get right to it. Justin, hey, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have a personal question for you first. Uh, do you use an iPhone or Android phone? iPhone. All right. So you get the idea of uh, unboxing. Like, <laughs> you know, like you, you wait and you wait and you get your new phone. And it's funny. We're recording now just after the Apple keynote last week. Uh, and I think everybody's a little bit anticipating getting new phones and stuff. But for me, uh, when I get a new phone, it feels like I feel like when I was a kid at Christmas, you know, waiting for my new thing to come. And the reason I mention this is because like the thing arrives in this beautiful packaging and you like start to unwrap it and start to unbox it. And you open up this very clearly intentional design experience around the box, um, around everything about your, your first moments with this new device, which I think is helps justify the outrageous amount you spent on this new device. <laughs> And what is the first thing you see but beautifully typeset words that say designed by Apple in California? And, uh, and that kind of resonates with what I wanted to talk to you about because you have been uh, curating a gallery exhibit at the, at the London Design Museum about design in California. And uh, this idea of, of designed in California, almost like the new, almost like the new made in USA used to be, but now there, there's this aura around it, isn't there? Yes, there is. I mean, California is influencing design in a big way. It's influencing our everyday lives in a big way. When I say California, I mean design from California. I mean, obviously, the iPhone is not made in California. So this new nomenclature of designed in is replacing the old made in uh, kind of category because nothing's made in California, probably. Yeah, there's almost this conceit around this that like, well, we all know that like everything, everything is made in Asia and we, we might even have this sense of collective in the West, at least this collective sense of guilt of like, oh, we've seen the working conditions and we know what it's like and everything. But, but let's put this layer over it and say like, well, yeah, but we, we came up with the idea over here, <laughs> right? Well, I think that's what the, that, that is what the post-industrial economy values, which is where the things are designed, not so yeah. much where yeah. they are made. And, but, but being able to say designed in California is presenting these products as homegrown products, effectively, that the real work, the innovation happens on the West Coast of the USA. And yes, they're assembled in Shenzhen, just outside of Hong Kong. Right. You know? Right, right. But, I mean, designed in California, I mean, for me, what was interesting is that, you know, you said made in the USA, but actually for me, what, what was resonant was this shift from what in Europe we once would have called, say, made in Italy. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. In California. And that's a shift not just in geographical locations, but really in a type of design. So in the 60s and 70s, when Italy was really the kind of capital of the design world in some, in some way, or at least in, you know, mythically, um, we were talking about home furnishings, essentially. And there were, you know, radical and less radical visions there. But essentially, we were talking about furniture and making furniture accessible to a growing middle class uh, and, and satisfying the need for kind of modernity. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, and with Design in California, we're really talking about a new category, and that is the category of the device. And the device is a thing that has a screen and software and a user interface, and it's a mutable state. You know, you don't put a device out into the world and, and that's it. You know, you're constantly updating it. It's a thing that is changing constantly. It's a thing that feeds back information to the producers, and they, they use that information to, to redesign or to improve, to iterate in public. And um, that's quite a significant shift in what we think of as design, actually. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let me, let me back you up to the um, kind of mid-century it- Italian design that was happening. What were some of the brands that came out of that or some of the more iconic works that people might uh, recognize? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, there were so many famous Italian product designers, people like Achille Castiglione. Oh, yeah, sure. Using uh, ready-mades in his design. There were people like Enzo Mari. God, I'm going to have to, I'm like, I now have to kind of search in different, <laughs> different memory bank from. Different but this is companies. also, I mean, beyond just Italy, this is also sort of the era of uh, uh, Rums and Braun, right? It is. It is. And Apple, to be fair, is coming out of that lineage. But, but Made in Italy is a more famous kind of designation it than is. Made in Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for but sure. Actually, for- you're right. I mean, Apple is coming out of the brown lineage, the Dieter Rams lineage of Ulm school modernism. So modernism coming from the, the Hochschule in Ulm, uh-huh. which was one of the design schools, you know, that really defined modernism for home appliances and more technical objects, very rational, but, uh, and minimalist, lots of kind of, um, smooth radius corners. Um, I mean, it's, it's the Apple aesthetic in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, uh, back then it was very much an acknowledgement of, uh, new materials, that had like plastics and even the eames with bent plywood and like these new techniques, these new materials that come out and like, Oh my gosh, we can do things both in new and innovative ways, but also at a scale and at a price that makes them much more accessible. I think we see a lot of that echoed today um, in the devices that we use and, and the design around us as well. Uh, I find that, yeah, it's that interesting sort of historic arc there, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, coming back to the, to the essential question, why would we do a show about Californian design? I mean, I think it's worth stating that in a way, this is, a, this is an exhibition that's been hiding in plain sight for quite some time. Um, I mean, so many of the tools that we use in our everyday lives, from personal computers to laptops to, um, to smartphones to social media platforms, were if not always invented in Silicon Valley, certainly popularized in Silicon Valley and made mainstream through Silicon Valley. So somehow I feel like the world is using Californian tools. Uh, I, I would say Apple and, you know, Apple and Google and Facebook are the kind of the sine qua non yep. of, that, of that situation. They're really global uh, platforms and global product companies. And yet, you know, there have been quite a lot of shows about California design, but they're always focused on the mid-century. They're always focused on people like Charles and Ray Eames or kind of case study houses and Richard Neutra. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. So really the question for us was, well, what happened after the Eameses? And there was a good show actually looking at, uh, there was a good show in the States called Hippie Modernism, 
which looked at the the 1960s and the kind of design and art output of the counterculture. And so this show really picks up from there, and it, it picks up on the kind of post Eames uh, period. And it was it was a show where we were trying to explore contemporary Californian design. But in order to do that, we found that we had to trace the story back to the 1960s. Um, so we set out to kind of explore Apple and you know Google and Facebook and 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 these kind of Silicon Valley giants, and we found that. The ethos that Silicon Valley kind of lives and breathes is a weird kind of transformed version of the counterculture in the U.S. in the 1960s, a counterculture in which, you know, hundreds of thousands of young Americans were leaving cities and leaving kind of Main Street uh, America to go and set up their own communes and to create a new life for themselves, rebelling in some way against the standardized lives and jobs that their parents were offering them, and rebelling a little bit against the political situation too, the Vietnam War, etc., you know, racial discrimination, and setting up communes where they could effectively start again, create a new society in which the individual had more agency, had more control over his his or her environment, his future. Uh, and this was a world where, you know, you would build a geodesic dome as your shelter and <laughs> you would make your own clothes and you'd grow your own food uh, and you'd try and build a community. And the Bible of that culture was the Whole Earth Catalog, which was founded by Stuart Brand in the late 60s and was was founded to service the needs of these commune builders really um it was an it was a kind of catalog of all the tools that you might require to set up your own commune from hand tools to communication tools to a lot of books actually 80 percent of the whole earth catalog was was books yep, yep so things that people should be reading to uh expand their consciousness if you like and that was a very interesting moment. And one of, the, one of the key features of that movement was this idea of self-reliance, that the individual is self-reliant. And, it, it, you know, the very first whole earth catalog in, in the kind of little purpose intro that Stuart Brand, Brand wrote, he wrote, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. Oh, I love that quote. It's a well-known quote. But this idea that the individual can, can achieve anything with the right tools and also with the right network is something that you see played out, I'd say, in today's Silicon Valley. And I would say that the way that transition happened was that when, this, when the commune started to peter out in the kind of mid-1970s, because they were actually, you know, in some ways quite primitive and, you know, dirty places. Dirty is the wrong word. I guess messy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and hierarchical in a way that they never wanted to be, but they ended up being, you know, hierarchical and patriarchal. Um, so when that movement peters out, Stuart Brand is looking around, he sees that there's actually a new generation of computer engineers and computer hackers. And it's just before the, the uh, personal computer revolution. And he recognizes that actually, okay, if, if, you know, living in communes and in geodesic domes is not going to liberate us, then it's probably going to be the personal computer that is the revolution that's going to change things. And effectively just kind of hitches 
the countercultural ethos to this new group of people who are creating personal computers and says, you know, these are the things that are going to, this is, this is the ultimate tool that's going to enable us to do anything anywhere, that's going to um, expand our potential, and it's going to ex- certainly expand our networks. And they just, you know, the, that computer community just kind of runs with that ethos. And oh, instead of Earth Catalog, you suddenly you get them setting up like the whole Earth Electronic Link, which is, you know, a, a, an early networked bulletin board effectively like one of the early social networks oh yeah the well right where um for yeah for sure uh it's interesting because that notion of bringing like putting the p in pc right that the this technology can be personal was an act of rebellion in the 70s right it was the the homebrew computer club and people like uh jobs and wozniak and many many others saying like technology should not be in these like research labs, but can be accessible to all of us and we can have access to it. And it's a way of fighting back against that mainstream and that establishment the way we had been five or six years ago in the sixties, we can continue to do that today, but in this different approach, which, and then of course the big ironic twist is that it made them all fabulously wealthy, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, the irony is that these programs initiate out of, you know, state funding and a lot of the technology is developed for the military until 1972. I think most uh, silicon chips were being used in Polaris intercontinental ballistic missiles. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah the, so these these guys in the home, homebrew computer club are saying that it shouldn't just be corporations in the military that have access to computer power. And you know, if you put the tools in people's hands, they will find a way to use them and make them useful. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. 
You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. So I went to the exhibit uh, about a week ago and following through, like, let's kind of walk a little bit through the themes of what you were trying to communicate around design in California, because on one hand, you did very much. You started around the rebellion of the 60s, the civil the civil rights, uh, even the uh, early kind of uh, gay pride, transgender movements, free speech movement in Berkeley and stuff like that, kind of juxtaposed with these devices that these um, computers like the Xerox uh, star and, and things like that, where this is all coming together. So that must have been an interesting way of sort of moving people through the space, but different aesthetics, but in the same era. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we, if we start with in a, in a way, the, the central message, our kind of curatorial guiding principle was that the show was going to look at tools of personal liberation. So what do I mean by that? I mean, tools that enable us to do more, to be more, to express ourselves more, uh, to be a, the fullest version of ourselves, if you like. So we came up with this idea, and, and the show really explores how one idea of freedom, a countercultural idea of freedom, morphs into a kind of techno-utopian Silicon Valley idea of freedom. And they're not the same thing, but they, they, have, similar, <laughs> they have similar strands. Uh, one is influencing the other. And so if that was our theme, then we thought, well, we'll structure the show around this idea of freedom. And so each section is an attitude. And we're arguing a kind of quintessentially Californian attitude. So, you know, you start in say what you want, which is um, basically tools of freedom of expression. And you go to see what you want, which is tools of perception and fantasy, to go where you want, which is tools of uh, movement and escape. Uh, on to make what you want, which is basically anything that makes making easier to join who you want, which is about tools of community and collaboration. So each section is an attitude. We could have structured the show chronologically from 1967 to 2017. Right. But that didn't, that felt like a false representation of history in, in some ways, because it's not a very kind of sequential story. And certainly much more interesting to do it with these attitudes, because then you can kind of collide strange things together. So as you, as you said, you know, like in the see what you want section, you've got, you've got acid, you know, LSD tabs and, and the kind of posters of the, of psych, you know, psychedelic posters. And at the same time, you've got like modern day surveillance tools and, and kind of social media tools like Snapchat spectacles and Google Glass, mm -hmm. you know, Nest Cam and GoPros and even video games and VR. You know, that somehow that those two things can coexist, I think is interesting. So I have to ask you the, on the blotter tabs that you had, like the artwork was amazing and you had the magnifying glass so you could see it all and that was good. Did you have controlled substance in the gallery? Were those real? We never really, we never really got a clear answer out of that. <laughs> the lender was fairly uh, ambiguous about it and we decided just to not ask too many questions. <laughs> we certainly didn't declare any uh, illegal substances, but who, who knows? I mean, we didn't taste them, so. Yeah, right. Just wear gloves while you move them around. I guess you're used to wearing gloves when you handle the objects, so that's fine. Uh, that's great. For the audience to taste them. So. <laughs> that's right. A whole different experience of your exhibit. Um, the, so 
uh, I was very, this was, it was a very emotional experience for me to go through this exhibit because I had so many connections to some of the early technology uh, that you were showing there. In particular, you had a video of some of the work that we did back at Wired Magazine when I was there. I was at Wired Magazine at the very beginning. I was like the, uh, I was one of the first people to start working on the websites there. And uh, you had this video looping of some of the the work that we were trying to do with HTML and JavaScript, like in 1997, we called it LiveWired. And it was intended to be like a, uh, almost like a screensaver that would run in your browser and push information to you. It was, it was, it was something we're all very proud of. Not, it was, it was difficult. It was certainly very ahead of its time. Hard to think back about the technical limitations back then. But it was a weird sense to look back on something you worked on 25 years ago and to see that somebody had captured it. It was, um, that was really, really nice. Yeah. I mean, LiveWired is a really interesting thing to look at these days. I mean, it's such an intense visual experience. You know, it's really, it's, it's graphically very rich. It's also quite kind of pixelated. You know, the, the pixels are really big. Yeah, well, so it's, it's, it's very much, it's very much a representation of the technical limitations. So we had such little bandwidth. This is at a time before home broadband. So people are using dial-up modems, you know, 288, 56K, stuff like that back then. And so to fill an entire browser window, like a full screen experience, with a with an image that we didn't want to be more than like 10 kilobytes 20 30 kilobytes you know tiny tiny images we'd we'd use the browser to stretch them out and so that caused us to have to kind of adapt a very chunky pixelated aesthetic and so we like designed the logos and designed the icons around this so that when we took like a an image of a person and stretched them out it kind of held together so that was um very much of a, of the age and yet if you look at the the kind of some of the pages of that website that that we've captured in that video, they're very graphically intense. Uh-huh. They're quite kind of full on and very different from say the conventions of web design today, oh, yeah. which is more kind of you know old school if you wanted to say like kind of more minimalist. You know, not too much visual noise, lots of white space, uh, very clear typography. A uh, very clear kind of uh, you, you know uh, structuring of the page, so you know exactly where you're supposed to look. You know all of that has been codified in the th- in the twenty odd years or more. You know since since you did that, right? But if you, if you look at those pages, they're really kind of they're coming at you like almost comic books. <laughs> yeah, um, and they have a kind of you know almost horror show kind of <laughs> aesthetic. They do, it's- yeah, 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 very much. I re- I remember back then sort of trying to explain to some of the designers that I was working with that in the magazine, like the physical wired magazine, the book that we sent out to people every month, there were embedded in that conventions that were centuries old, that there was a cover and that there was a back. People know how to hold it. Like there's a binding and that goes in your left hand and that you turn a page and that there's a number in the bottom of each page. Then there's an index and table of, or rather a table of contents and stuff like all of these conventions we take for granted. And after a couple of centuries of, of refining that context, we were able to push it around. Right. And, and really push what a magazine could be. And I'm like, on this new medium that we're working on the web, there are none of those contexts. We have no idea how to get from page to page and where navigation should be. And, um, and most people don't even know what to click on or any of that stuff. And I think we were in an, in an environment of Wired where we very much wanted to explore and push and learn, 
But at the same time, we didn't focus on a lot of those basic fundamentals of usability that now I think what you're, you're pointing out is, you know, you pick up your, your iPhone and you launch an app. There are, are, there are many, many conventions that we now take for granted. And now maybe, maybe we can't start to push back and maybe the pendulum will swing away from the minimalism a bit. Yeah, I, could, I had this kind of feeling when we were curating the show that after you know, a good number of years of Apple-inspired minimalism and, and kind of good, sensible UI design, that maybe people would be ready for, in fact, not just UI design, but if we think about how tasteful and conventional print publishing has been yeah. in recent years, like if you think about the direction that most magazines have gone in the last five you know, six, seven years. We, in looking back on people like April, graphic designers like April Griman and David Carson, couldn't help wondering if, if somehow the, the show might just tip the balance a little bit the other way and remind people that actually there was a period when graphic design was used for, you know, was used in a kind of rebellious way, in a much more expressive way, in a much less tasteful way for sure. It's interesting that if you look at the politics of today, how yeah. much there is to kick against how little of that is coming out graphically, right. actually. Well, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm out of touch and I'm looking at the wrong things, and no doubt there are, there are interesting graphic subcultures out there which re really definitely do this, and they'll be in the museums of the future. But um, if, I look, if I pick up you know, magazines today, I don't see that, any of that kind of punk, you know, rebellious spirit. I see everyone trying to design a book like a, kind, like, like a magazine, like a kind of edition of uh, a 1920s French Gallimard, you know, classic. I love that kind of aesthetic. But at the same time, I'm just wondering where this kind of other graphic design is. That's right, right. If you think of like, well, you know, my own experience in the mid 90s, as a, that, that uh, era of grunge and Ray Gun magazine and Thrasher and all, all of the st stuff that you mentioned, that design of tearing things apart, destroying things and stuff like that, very much a cultural sort of convulsion that was happening after the, I would imagine, after the sort of Reagan-Bush era and the conservatism of that time and, and saying like, no, we're coming back. And so perhaps it is a bit of a lag from what's happening today and that will happen. I expect it to. I, I can't imagine we're going to further and further refine down to more and more minimalism. But we'll see. I don't know. It's a, that's a, it's a good thing to keep an eye out for, especially... It is, it is uh, weird, though, if, if that was happening in the 90s, which actually was such a historically such a stable period and such right. a kind of you know politically boring you know center you know a centrist kind of clintonite politics it was a period when you know um the liberal consensus had won you know fukuyama was talking about the end of history and yet you've got this kind of still this kind of grunge and punk stuff rebelling against banality normalcy Maybe in a period of political turmoil like we're living through, we need graphic stability. At God, the boring. Be, yeah. Like I just need a safe space to go back into, and that's going to be my phone. <laughs> I like that. So here's an interesting juxtaposition that you may not know about in your curation of that particular area of the exhibit, which is right by the Wired stuff was some of the civil rights and uh, free speech artifacts. You had the original gay pride flag. Uh, and a couple other things, including a recording of the Mario Savio speech of like, we press ourselves against the gears of the machine and, and all of that, that he gave at the Berkeley free speech demonstrations, right? Yeah, that's right. Mario Savio's son is named Nadav Savio, who was a coworker of mine and friend at uh, Wired at the time and worked on that live, live Wired 
project. Like he wrote a lot of the JavaScript that was in there next to his dad's voice. And I just found that just incredibly meaningful. And a, I am expecting some just completely random coincidence. That is, that is a total coincidence. We had no idea. Yeah. Um, and, and I love, I mean, there's so much, there, there are so many histories in that show. Yeah. And it's really interesting when, when you hear things like that, that that's kind of serendipity. And, but also that Mario Savio speech is so interesting in the context of the show because, you know, he's somehow in that speech, he's arguing against the dehumanizing potential of technology, right? That somehow we, you know, we press our bodies against the gears that somehow he's rebelling. He's, he's arguing against the computerization of, of society, right? Yeah. And yet, and yet the show is about the opposite happening. <laughs> so, you know, in fact, the show takes, it takes a different perspective, which is that actually the, the Stuart Brand perspective, which mm. is that the machine is going to liberate us, that the computers are going to liberate us. That's certainly, that's certainly what Wired thought yep. in the 90s, that the computer is the ultimate tool that's going to liberate us. And if you look at those Wired covers from the 90s, I forget, you know, there's one called The Boom Years or something, or mm. The Long Boom. The Long Boom, yeah. And the, the the title cover is something like, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, you know, we're entering 25 years of prosperity and a better world, strong economy and a better world for everybody. You have a problem with that? <laughs> you know, it's like this kind of arrogant, like boosterish attitude, which is so, it's just so interesting to see now. Yeah. Yeah. How that's changed too. that, that, that understanding of like this, te- this unbridled techno optimism that uh, we can solve all of the problems using this technology ha- had no recognition of the other side of that coin where, for example, uh, the, the kind of tribalism that we were seeing happening with social media, where you can craft a curated world that never challenges your view of the world politically or, or in any sense, uh, was incredibly powerful back then. I remember that in San Francisco for the LGBT community where people would be like, for the first time, I, I, I don't feel alone. I'm connected through these communities like The Well or uh, other early uh, online spaces to be able to find people like me. I didn't know that existed, you know, but that is, you know, the same thing happening now in our, our last election where people are all connected to each other. I found people like me, but all consuming you know, f- fake news or, or whatever. I, yeah, I think there's there's some some heaviness to this this notion of that former optimism that we had for all the technology yeah it seems like we have spent so much energy and design talent actually in trying to um, connect sameness and connect people who are akin to each other that we've forgotten how to encourage connecting difference how do you how do you design and curate for situations that allow for different people to meet people with from very different backgrounds, very different views. That seems like one of the great challenges of our moment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think absolutely. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, let me change gears a little bit. Tell me about the process of curating an act of design itself is something I don't know that much about. You have a physical space, you have some sense of the objects and the themes and just how you put that all together. It's a combination of the very interesting and the very boring like most things, (laughs) Uh, there's a fun part where you have an idea and you start to explore and research that idea and you start to um, build a network. I mean, the first thing you do when you're starting to curate a show is you start to build a network. You start to meet people 
and those people show you things and they tell you about other people that you need to meet. And the network kind of grows. I wouldn't say exponentially, because that's, but it certainly grows and expands. And the conversation that you, you kind of go through this period of making the conversation as big as possible. And then you have to kind of rein it in a little bit. You have to say, okay, well, this is, you know, we, we've encountered all this stuff. We, we're kind of totally overstimulated at this point. How do we hone it down into a clear message? And that takes a bit of time. And it's, you need to live with it a little while before you start to get a sense of clarity. What's this show about? What's yeah. the message for? How do we structure it in a way that we can, we can make it really clear? Because obviously what we've presented is, is an oversimplified version of something that's much, much more, it's much messier and much more complex. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's true for any thematic show, you know, any show that's not about a, a, an individual person, that's probably always the case. And then we, you know, we visited a lot of people and places that we could borrow things from. So, um, it starts to get, you know, you, you start to get excited when you look at things, you think, okay, we'd like to have that. We'd like to have one of those. And a lot of, you know, we couldn't visit everyone. So a lot of things we requested which we had never seen actually and so they arrive at the museum and you realize they're a completely different shape or form than you you had imagined so that's also interesting and there's a really boring process which is loan forms so you know loan forms are the lifeblood of a museum and you request to borrow something from another museum or from a from a lender uh, it could just be any it could be a private person or a designer or a collector or another museum and um, you start requesting all of these loans, and some people say, most people say yes, some people say no for whatever reason, um, because something's too delicate or because it's going in another show. I, I always think of curating as a kind of tragicomic profession because there's the show you have in your head, and then there's the show you end up with. And, you know, in between, there's a, there's a lot of, I don't know, contingency and accident and impossibility. And you, you must also have many sort of physical constraints too. like, how do we actually express this? I mean, you have a car in the, in the room, giant screens trying to show some of the, the more dynamic, like video, and, uh, interactive presentations, things like that, uh, where you're, you're working with carpenters and building things and just all sorts of constraint around that, I would imagine. Well, there are all kinds of constraints. I mean, one of them I have to be upfront about is financial. Well, sure. So yeah. How are we going to ship that? So, you know, we wanted to have a low rider in the in the show, actually. Oh, cool. um, of course, you know, that's a big, big machine to ship. We did ship a Google, uh, well, a Waymo self-driving car, formerly a Google self-driving car, uh, which is a big old thing. And we shipped uh, another big, fairly large machine, uh, uh, the chopper from Easy Rider, the yeah. Captain America chopper. And, you know, ultimately, we only have a limited amount of budget and you have to decide what you want to do with it. So we decided those were going to be the big things. There's also, you know, it's also really hard to curate digital work. It's very hard to curate something like user interface design. It's, you know, if you're going to explain it properly, it gets very technical. You need a lot of space to do it. It's kind of nerdy. So you're not really, never really sure, like, do people really want to get into the details of this or, yeah. you know. Um, so video, we use a lot of video. Um, you mentioned the Xerox star, um, which is the, the personal computer that really launches the metaphor of the desktop yep, yep. with you know, folders and a trash can and drop down menu, etc. So, you know, how do you explain that? I mean, we had a video that was 
it was trying to explain that story. We had a video that Apple made for us trying to explain how they um, came up with the multi-touch touchscreen because that is what made the iPhone a revolutionary product. This idea that they, that it was simply a smooth surface that you could, that was pure, you know, digital interactivity. And it initiated a whole new way of interacting with computers through your fingertips and through gestures and all of that. So they made a video about how they, how they created multi-touch, which was helpful. So we, in a way, we had to rely on companies to help us do this. Like Google showed us how they made their uh, material design interface for, for the Android phones. Yeah. And, you know, they, they start off with paper. So they made some paper models, and, but they also made an animation showing how, how they put the, the paper maquettes into effect. And you had Susan Kerr's notebooks of the original Mac icons, or maybe even the Lisa icons, to be, to be fair. But like her her graph paper, like filling in each square to draw these icons that we God we take so for granted, uh, like the the little hand that clicks and the the little Mac that smiles at you when it turns on. Like it was really great to see all that too. Yeah, I mean, looking at Susan, you know, looking at Susan Kerr's notebook, you realize that this whole world of interacting with computers through icons and through buttons starts with someone with a pen and a notebook just like so many other creative processes and uh-huh. you really uh-huh. see her early sketches on graph paper of the the finger cursor you know the hand pointing cursor the scissors the paste brush all of those things it's pretty amazing to see that notebook actually yeah it really is i, I, I like that a lot you guys are also the london design museum is in a new ish building it's been about a year has it yeah we've been open here for um nine or ten months yeah. we opened in november last year it's it's a much bigger building than our our previous building where we were at um tower bridge and it's a it's a gorgeous building like the space is just fantastic and over in south kensington yeah well kensington high street yeah right sorry yes. and um it's a it's a beautiful building from the 1960s that was formerly the commonwealth institute building and it was derelict for a long time before we took it actually and it, it was also protected because it has this incredible roof which was the first double curved concrete roof in the uk so mm. it has a special status and it was redesigned internally by the British architect John Pawson, and it's a beautiful place. And it's—I uh, like to think of it as an instrument that we're still learning how to play. You know, there are the galleries, which are white cubes, so that they're fairly straightforward. But we're also trying to think about how to inhabit the rest of the the space and make it interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's great, um, Justin. Thanks uh, so much for sharing kind of the process and the thinking and the, the philosophy behind all of this. That's great. The show, I believe, is on through through October 15. So uh, get there quick if you're in London. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And I will put links to the in the show notes here to uh, everything about where where to go and, um, and the Design Museum website and all of that. So thanks for being on the show, Justin. I really appreciate it. Not at all. It was fun talking to you. Thanks a lot. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.